Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. Father, we're so thankful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are immutable that you never change. And thank you for the great sense of security that gives us knowing your consistency to your person and to your promises. We intercede this morning for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine. We ask your protection over their life, over their many churches as more and more of that nation is being obliterated. Give the pastors their strength that they might not waver, that they might lead not out of fear, but out of a sense of confidence and faith as we just sang. We humble ourselves before you. We ask this morning that you would take the truth of your word and bring it afresh to our hearts that we might know it so well we'd be able to help those that you would entrust to us to minister to with the truth of these words. Father, come help me, come fill me, Thank you in weakness, there is great strength, and I trust you for that, that together, Spirit of God, we might lift up the Son of God to the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, all the T books in the Bible are found in the New Testament, they're together. I want to speak this morning on Israel's rebirth and the rapture. Now, the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. One of these days, all true Christians will suddenly disappear. They'll be gone off the face of the earth. It's called the rapture. And those who are left behind will be left behind for this single most terrible time in all of human history. And if we're not living in the time frame described in our passage, we're certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are being put together. Think about it. Many sitting in this room this morning or listening to me via live stream, in your lifetime, you've witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the regathering of the Jewish people. The first record of population demographics since Josephus in the first century is not until 1880, where in Israel, about 3% or 25,000 of the 7.8 million Jews who were alive were in the land, only 25,000. Then, of course, during World War II, Hitler annihilated some 6 million of the 8 million Jews who were alive on the planet at the time. Of course, God often uses the wrath of man to praise him, and so God turned the hearts of the Jewish people to go to the only place where many of them knew they could go and potentially find safety, and that was to the land of Israel. A boatload of Jewish people came to our own shores, and the President of the United States turned them away, only to go back to the gas chambers and to be annihilated. But today, we went from 600,000 Jews that were in place on April, uh, May the 14th, 1948, when Israel 
in a single day became a nation to now 7 million Jews, more than half of the Jews on the planet today are in that land we call Israel. And this is important. You say, well, is it prophetically significant? Absolutely. Because the prophecies for the second coming must have the people of Israel in the land for them to fulfill those prophecies. Now, God could have raptured the church in 300 AD and then done so much in a short period of time and brought the Jews back into the land and then fulfilled his prophetic plan, but he didn't do that. But he is doing it in our day. People often say, I wish I could live in biblical times. You are, if you know your scripture. Israel is exhibit A, that God is putting in place those pieces of the puzzle that are necessary for his son to come at the second coming. Isaiah 66 and verse eight predicted that in a single day, the people would become a nation. Now think your way through this. In 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, the city of Jerusalem was burned, the temple was destroyed, virtually all the Jews were expelled. Some gathered back, went for a second shot against Rome. Between 130 and 132, they fought against the Romans, and then Hadrian terminated the rights of Jewish people to live in the land. And so for 1,900 years, virtually, almost 1,900 years, the Jews were not in the land of Israel. But God predicted at the end of time he would gather the Jewish people. Pastors who preach that, as I've told you before, even 100 years ago were basically laughed at. They were told that they misunderstood the scripture. Joseph Seiss, a Lutheran pastor, wrote these words in 1856. I quote, one day the people of Israel will go back to the promised land. I do not know how it will happen, but I believe it will happen because the Bible predicts it will happen. And he wrote that in the day when the vast majority of pastors and theologians denied that simple truth. In fact, when Hadrian ended up conquering Israel in 135 AD, he renamed the land. He called it Syria Palestina after the word for Palestine. And so today we have, quote unquote, Palestinians, really a made up group of people. And wanting to eliminate the memory of the Jews off the face of the earth, he not only renamed the nation, he renamed the city of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolia, a Latin, an Italian name. And so for virtually 1900 years, if you looked on a map, Israel would not be there. But God predicted, and God is always faithful to his word, that he would regather the Jewish people. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. Therefore say, speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. In Ezekiel 38, God tells us that they have to be in place in the land by the end of time. Listen to these words. After many days, you will be summoned. He's speaking about these nations that are going to go against the people of Israel, how God will put a hook in their jaw and bring them to attack Israel. They will choose to do it on their own, but God will sovereignly orchestrate the circumstances. And so next week, we will look at the rise of Russia in prophecy and the great war of Gog and Magog. After many days, you will be summoned in the latter years. 
you will come into the land that is restored. That's Israel, restored today from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Listen to these words, the prophet Zechariah, he writes about 480 years before Christ. He predicted long after the Babylonian captivity was over and the people had come back, he predicted another scattering and another regathering. He wrote these words in Zechariah 10, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries and they with their children will live and come back. The prophet Isaiah in the 43rd chapter writes that before the second coming of the Messiah, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So for the very first time since 70 AD, both the church, the body of Christ, and Israel coexist on the earth. And many sitting here have witnessed that in their lifetime since you've been born, not to mention other prophecies like the rise of a sodomite society and the political and economic and moral bankruptcy that God predicted would come at the end of time. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle being put together because God is unfolding his prophetic schedule. And so this is the first in a series that I suspect will take at least 15 sermons as we're going to unfold God's prophetic schedule. Now, prophecy accounts for approximately one-third of the Bible. And yet, sadly, in our day, it's not taught. There's widespread ignorance over God's prophetic schedule. Partly, I think some pastors are reluctant because they've seen all these wacko, crazo people set dates, times, years when Christ will return only to be mocked. But I think more recently in our day, because prophecy was largely taught in the 1970s in the evangelical church, the church sadly bought into a new paradigm on how to do church through the influence of Bill Hybels and Rick Warren. And prophecy had no place in their paradigm. In fact, expository preaching has very little place in what they were trying to do. But we're going to learn today that all Bible-believing churches and denominations believe in the rapture. They may not believe in how it will unfold, but they believe in the rapture. Now, sometimes when people think of the rapture, they say, well, it can't happen because there's so many, so many things that haven't happened. And what they are doing is they're confusing the second coming with the rapture of the church. In Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, he's speaking about the tribulation period, that seven-year period that Daniel the prophet wrote about, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You don't wanna miss the rapture of the church because if you miss the rapture, you will be a part of the single most horrible time in all of human history. I think it's helpful sometimes to think of the, the rapture and the second coming maybe in broader terms, in terms of the second coming program and the first coming program. Like take the first coming for instance. We don't restrict it to a singular event like the virgin birth. That's part of the first coming program that Messiah would be conceived of a virgin, but that he would come and live a sinless life, that he would die on a cross, be buried, raised from the dead, and ascend into heaven. That's all part of the first coming program. Think of the second coming 
as well as a big umbrella. And under that um, second coming program, there's a number of events. The rapture of the church, followed by a seven plus year period we call the Great Tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ to earth, his millennial reign for a thousand years on the earth, then a new heaven and a new earth, and all kinds of events. And so the catching up of the church is distinctly different from when Christ will physically come to the earth. Two distinct events, which I hope you will know by the time we're finished, if you don't already. First Thessalonians chapter four, I hope you have a Bible. How many of you have a Bible? Hold it up high. All right, good. Glad to see less electronic Bibles today. <laughs> I'm not against them, but you need a paper copy. You'll get much more out of it, all right? First Thessalonians four, beginning now in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So today, as we think of the rapture and the second coming, which are all part of the second coming program, it's important again to distinguish both. The rapture is one event. The second coming to the earth is a distinctly different event. Here's a chart that might help you to sort it out a little bit. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we just read it, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Christ will come for his saints, for his church. But at the second coming, we come back with Christ. He comes back with his church. In the rapture, we're caught up, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, we come back to rule and reign with the Messiah as he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, just as promised. Again, at the rapture, he, he takes us to heaven. The second coming, he brings us to earth. When you think of the rapture, it's a non-prophetically driven event. There has never been in the history of the church a single prophecy that is needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and catch up his people. Whereas the second coming of Christ is clearly a prophetically driven event. And again, I hope you'll see that. Think about the second coming of Christ for just a moment. For that to happen, all kinds of things have to happen. There's going to be the great tribulation period. He'll say those who are in Judea flee into the wilderness. Not those who are in Dallas, but those who are in Judea. Why? Because Israel is back in the land. There's an assumption there that indeed there are events that have to happen. And yet when Jesus describes the catching up of the church, he describes it as an imminent event. You know what we mean by imminency? That it could happen at any moment. Again, nothing needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church. But if you see prophecy like the regathering of Israel into the land being fulfilled in your lifetime, then you know that the rapture of the church is that much closer. So Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where's Jesus? He's in heaven. And when he comes for us, he's gonna take us where he is. And yet when you 
encounter people sometimes. They say, well, Jesus can't come back. The gospel has been preached to the whole world. They'll quote a verse like Matthew 24 and verse 13 where Jesus said, the gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. He's not speaking of the rapture in the context. He's speaking of his second coming to earth. And indeed, after the church is removed, the Gentile church is gone, though there are some Jews in it today. And who will take over? The Jewish people will. The tribulation is designed, as we're going to learn, not for the bride of Christ, but it's designed for Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, and God is going to use it to convert the Jews, beginning with what we're going to study next week. It's an important time. And then those Jewish people will take the gospel to the whole world, 144,000, two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, not to mention an eternal angel. And so John sees this number that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then the end will come. There are many things that have to happen for the second coming. There has to be a one world leader. He's called the beast. He's called the antichrist. There's going to be a, a new world order with a singular government across the planet. There'll be a one world economy. You will not be able to buy or sell anything unless you take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. These are all events that must take place before the second coming. And that's why the rapture of the church, since it is imminent, could happen at any moment, must happen first. And we'll study that in depth. There are some Christians who say, oh, it will happen after the tribulation. God willing, before we're done, I'll give you 10 reasons why the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, let me bring you into the historical context here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, if you read the Acts, preached to the church at Thessalonica. There was no church there. He preached the gospel. People were converted, one to Christ. He was there just three weeks, and he left. And he preached about the return of the Messiah. Paul preached prophecy. He was there only three weeks. I guess he thought it pretty critical for new Christians to know something about prophecy. That's why we include it in the new Christians class, in the discovery class. And we know he taught it because in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? But some of them were obviously a little bit confused. Eschatology is certainly a challenging subject. However, they've been taught that Jesus could come back at any moment. And many concluded that he would come back during their lifetime. That's why some of them quit their jobs. And Paul had to admonish them. And he would say, and to work with your hands and to work hard and not to live an undisciplined life. Some of them just had their heads in the clouds of prophecy and they needed to have their feet on the ground of reality. And so he will admonish them, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. Don't quit your jobs. You need to work and be busy and occupied until Jesus came. You know, some today are like that. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But more Christians today, I suppose, are so worldly minded, they're no heavenly good. But when you read about the return of Christ, whether it's in the rapture or the second coming, in almost every passage, there's an accompanying exhortation of how we should live. It doesn't teach us to be 
irresponsible, but responsible. Someday Jesus is going to come back, and Second Peter says he's going to burn the whole planet. But I still water my plants every week. You know what I'm saying? So the Thessalonians were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. How long has Paul been gone since he started the church and he writes this letter? Three months. And in three months' time, some of them had already died. And so they're concerned. Will they miss the millennial reign of the Messiah? What will happen? They had some serious questions. They weren't doubting the doctrine of the resurrection. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. They were trying to understand how it would unfold and the specifics of it. Now remember, God's word was not given all at once. Initially, all the early church had was the Old Testament scriptures to preach Jesus from. But slowly over the course of a few decades, several decades really, the New Testament and its 27 books were given. So when they ask the question, they don't have 1 Thessalonians 4, obviously. But again, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, if you look across the page, he said, because they knew something about the Lord's return, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Their questions again concern the timing. Would those who have died, when would they be resurrected? What part would they have in the promised kingdom that God speaks of in Scripture? So they're trying to understand the timing of the bodily resurrection. And so Paul wants to relieve their fears, and he underscores two major truths there in your outline. First, the promise of his return. He begins with the promise of his return. Notice how verse 13 begins, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest, meaning the lost, or you could say the rest of mankind, I think the NAS 2020 renders it, who have no hope. Now please note, Paul identifies three problems these Christians have, and they are the same three problems that many Christians have today. First, they were uninformed, agnosis. Gnosis is knowledge. You put the alpha prefix in front of it, and it cancels it out, and so they had basically no knowledge. And so the Old English translates it rightly so, ignorant. They were ignorant. In fact, it's interesting to examine the four occasions when Paul, in four different epistles, addresses ignorance in the church. Here's a chart that might help you. In Romans 11.25, he said, you're not to be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. And my, has there ever been ignorance in the history of the church? It's in our day. Most people have no idea what God is doing with the nation of Israel who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, you're not to be ignorant about your spiritual gifts. The day God saved you, he gave you a spiritual gift. I wrote an exam. It's at searchthescriptures.org, 128 question exam. Take it honestly, and it might help you discern what your spiritual gift is. It's not a talent like singing or music or art. On the day God saved you, he gave you a special gift to serve the body of Christ. And if you're a baby Christian, you won't know what that gift is, but as you begin to grow, it will manifest itself. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, you're not to be ignorant about trials. Christians face trials. In the world, you will have philipsis, tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Contrary to the false prosperity teachers of our day who basically paint the Christian life like some 
walk through the tulips. There's trials and heartache. And then here in 1 Thessalonians 4, you're not to be ignorant on the rapture about Christ's return. Now, God, no doubt, had Paul emphasize these four because to this day there is gross ignorance. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't want you to be uninformed. And God doesn't want you to be uninformed. And that's why I want you to listen carefully today. And so first, they were uninformed. Second, they were not grieving, at least not the way a Christian believer should grieve. And third, they lacked hope, uh, the kind of hope that God wanted them to have. And so how do you dispel ignorance? You replace it with truth. Now remember, whenever you see the Apostle Paul use the word brethren, it's used in one of two ways. Either he's addressing those who are his brethren um, as descendants of Abraham, Jewish brethren, but most commonly he uses the term as he uses it here to refer to true believers. It's a generic term, you could say brethren and cistern, or I think the newer translations, even the 2020 says brothers and sisters. So he's talking about brothers and sisters who are uninformed about those who are asleep. Now why is it that Paul refers to death as sleep? Well, if you will notice in three successive verses, Paul describes those who have died as asleep. You might want to circle them. First in verse 13, he says it. Then in verse 14, he speaks of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Then in verse 15, we're told at the coming of the Lord, we who are alive shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In fact, throughout the New Testament, God uses this word sleep to describe someone whose body is sleeping in death. For instance, in John 11, 11, Jesus said our friend Lazarus sleeps, meaning he has died. Or in Acts 7 and verse 60, Stephen, we're told, as he is being stoned to death, fell asleep. Or in Acts 13, 36, Paul is preaching about David who fell asleep and in contradistinction to Jesus, he underwent decay. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, that great resurrection chapter, Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who fall asleep. So we need to ask if this reference to asleep means that the Christian is in some unconscious state when he dies. Now, there are some, like Seventh-day Adventists, who falsely taught that. Seventh-day Adventists had an incredibly shaky beginning, led by a woman, Ellen G. White, who was just really beyond imagination. She had all these visions, and most cults are started with some extra-biblical revelation that goes beyond the scope of Scripture. And so they teach, and sadly, some others have vainly adopted it, that when you die, body, soul, and spirit sleep in the grave awaiting the resurrection. That is not a biblical truth. The Bible teaches that the moment of physical death, the person inside goes home to be with the Lord. They are present with Christ. The true believer does not sleep in a grave, but clearly, as chapter 4 will reveal, they are awaiting the resurrection of their body while they are in heaven. 
And so your loved one in heaven this morning is not in his resurrection body. And I hear people say it all the time, you know, and you, you, time to correct it is not at a funeral or their grieving. Oh, he's there in his glorified body just dancing in heaven. No, he's not. He's waiting for his glorified body. He doesn't have it yet. Now, it appears from Scripture that the believer in heaven is given some kind of temporal body, but it's not the resurrection body. The saint leaves his physical body, the body sleeps, but not the person inside. You say, well, if the body is in the grave, the person in heaven, are they in some kind of a conscious state? Absolutely, again, here's a chart that might help you a little bit. In Matthew 17, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and behold, Moses and Elijah appear to them, talking with them. I'd say that's pretty conscious, and by the way, they were recognizable. People say, well, I recognize my loved one in heaven? Absolutely, just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable. Or think about the thief on the cross. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Or think about Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, he refers to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Or again, Stephen, when he is being stoned to death, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Furthermore, in the Revelation, you read of tribulation saints. People have said, oh, we must be raptured after the, at the end of the tribulation because the scripture speaks of saints. Of course it does. It speaks of Old Testament saints, it speaks of church saints, and it speaks of future tribulation saints. In Revelation 6, 9, and 10, we learn of the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God. These are believers who are converted during the tribulation who pay the ultimate price with their heads because they refuse to follow Antichrist. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are conscious, they are praying, they are crying out. Even so, in 2 Corinthians 5, most of you know that verse, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Or Paul, when he writes the church in Philippi, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, to die would be a great loss for the believer if body, soul, and spirit sleeps in a tomb somewhere. But no, absent from the body, present with the Lord, to die is actually a gain because you have more of Christ in the fullest sense. So that's why he goes on to say, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and listen and to be with Christ. To depart from this body and to be with Christ For that is very much better. But then he brought it back to earth in verse 24 of Philippians 1. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He longed to go and to be with the Lord in heaven. But he knew there was more people who needed to be won through his preaching of the gospel and more saints who needed to grow and mature in their faith. So the Bible is explicitly clear that both the believer and for that matter, the unbeliever, one second after you die are conscious. You're either conscious in the presence of the Lord in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, or you are conscious in a place the scripture calls Hades that someday will become a part of the lake of fire. 
So knowing the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, what I want you to see from our passage is that to be asleep is never described of the person inside the body, but of the body itself. And it's a very fitting figure that God would use, that just as our sleep is followed by an awakening, our burial someday will be followed by a resurrection. And so for the Christian, our body is laid down like you might lay down for a nap. Some of you go home for the classic Sunday nap. I long for that. I usually am up at 5. Here by this morning, I was here a little late at 6.20, and and I'll be here and probably go home tonight at 9 o'clock. But some of you will go home this afternoon, and you will have your classic Sunday afternoon nap, only to get up. A magnificent picture of what will happen when you die. Again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A born-again president, his name was John Quincy Adams. On his 80th birthday, he was asked this question, how is John Quincy Adams today? To which he responded, well, John Quincy Adams is quite well, but the house he is living in has become quite dilapidated. Before long, it will be unlivable, and I must move out, but John Quincy Adams is doing quite well. You see, he realized that his earthly physical body was just a house that he lived in, but someday he would have a real home in heaven. There was a famous Christian. He's buried outside of the city of London. His name is Solomon Pease. He spelled it P-E-A-S. I've told you of him before. And he had inscribed on his tombstone before he died, beneath these clouds and under these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. Peas ain't here, it's just the pod. Peas shelled out and went to God. (laughs) That's true. All that's laid in the grave is the pod, but the person inside, the immaterial person, are soul and spirit. Man is described as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes in scripture, soul is used to describe both soul and spirit, like what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But when it's dissected specifically, it's described as body, soul, and spirit. The unbeliever has his soul. That is the personality, his mind, his will, his emotions, the immaterial you. But his spirit is dead. He's dead in trespasses and sins. That's why Jesus said, your spirit needs to be made alive, as Paul will say to the Colossians. You must be born a second time to know the Lord and to have a promised place in heaven. But God gives as much hope for the body as he does for the soul. Someday, he will raise that body up as well. And so God promises... A raising. You know, it's interesting. The word cemetery is from the Greek word koimaterion that comes into Latin. You can almost hear it even in Greek, and then it comes directly into English as cemetery. That's what they called the places of burial in the first century. There were sleeping places, there were dormitories, there were sleeping chambers. And they're describing the places where the bodies are laid. And so God describes the believer's body as being asleep. By the way, he never describes the unbeliever's body in that fashion. It's not that he couldn't because their body indeed is waiting a resurrection because just as your body that you're in today is not suited for heaven, this mortality must put on immortality, this perishable must put on the imperishable. Even so, their body is not suited for hell. 
Otherwise, in a flash of time, they would be annihilated. And the Bible teaches the eternal retribution of God Almighty on the lost, the place designed for the devil and his angels. And if you go there, you'll have no one to blame but yourself because you rejected God's way of escape. But God never describes the unbeliever's body in peace. We may rest, right, rest in peace, but there's no peace for a lost man after he dies. So again here in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, meaning brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or dead, so that you not grieve as the rest who have no hope. We don't want you to grieve like the lost people of this world. Now, please note, he does not say we are not to grieve. Jesus wept at the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Don't let anyone tell you that strong Christians don't weep at the death of a loved one, because they do. The apostle Paul could say of his dear friend Epaphroditus, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him also, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Had the apostle Paul had to deal with Epaphroditus' death, he said, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. I would have grieved deeply. Grieving is natural. That's why God gave you tear ducts. Yesterday, I was in a house of death. A dear family lost their son. Heartbroken tears, crying, grief. But if you know the Lord, you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Jesus wept, the scripture says. Short verse, if you're starting your Bible memory program, that might be a good place to start. Grieving is necessary. And it's unnatural not to grieve. And so some of these saints were gone already. They were dead. They were in the grave. But God wanted them to have perspective. Look, if you lose your wife or your husband, a child, a grandchild, you will grieve deeply. The more passionately you love them, typically, the greater will be your grief. But our sorrow is not like the sorrow an unbeliever has. It's more like the sadness when you have to say goodbye to someone and, and you know you won't see them for a real long time. That's the kind of grief that we have because we know that they are with the Lord. So we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And let me just say parenthetically, I suppose nothing is harder for me as a believing pastor to preach the funeral of an unbeliever. Someone who is Christ-rejecting and a God-hater. Now, I think it would be very insensitive to say, well, your father, your mother, your brother, your son, he is burning in hell. That doesn't offer any comfort. But I can say, based on Luke 16, 8, what Jesus said, basically, if your brother were here today and were to preach your own funeral, let me tell you what he would want me to say. And I say that on the basis of what Jesus described of the unbeliever who died and went to Hades. I hope you know there are no unbelievers in hell. Everyone in hell believes. 
But of the rich man who was in hell, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, speaking of Abraham who's in heaven, I beg you that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. By the way, here's a lost person asking for evangelism. What a rebuke to a lackadaisical church that today very few Christians share their faith. He would never, ever, ever want any of his loved ones to come to that place of torment where he is. So the Lord continues in this account. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, we'd say. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus is teaching that all one really needs is the Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture is alive. You know, a man may say he doesn't believe in God, but he does. Because God has revealed himself to every man through creation and conscience. And a man may say, well, I don't believe the Bible, but he does. When he hears it, unlike the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Vedas or any other religious book, some encyclical letter, some papal bull, only the Bible is alive. Only the Bible pricks the heart. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And of course, that truth is hammered home. Because a short time later, there was a man by the name of Lazarus who literally died, and Jesus raised him back to life. And from that day forward, the scripture says, the religious leaders sought to murder Lazarus, get rid of the evidence, to take out Christ. One of the truths we learn from Luke 16, among other things, is that at the moment of physical death, the unbeliever is conscious as well. And so when a lost sinner dies, we may mourn for them. But when a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because that believer is more alive than they've ever been. They're with the Lord. Clearly, our saved ones, loved ones, we don't have to grieve like the rest who have no hope because, again, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, look at that word hope. You might want to circle it. It's an important Greek word, elpidus. It is a word that is much stronger than our English word hope. It speaks of something that is sure and certain. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it as a joyful and confident expectation. And hope biblically has both desire and expectancy. And if you admit either desire or expectancy, you do not have biblical hope. For instance, I may desire to win a million dollars, but I don't expect to. And I may expect to pay my taxes, but I don't desire to. So when we speak of hope, we're speaking of both expectancy and desire. It is something sure and certain that God has guaranteed. And so he wants to underwrite in your thinking this sure and certain hope. And to do it, he begins with the grounds of our hope is the work of Christ. He grounds our hope on the work of Christ. Now, each of these two reasons that he's going to give, first the work of Christ and then the word of Christ, they're both introduced with the little three-letter word for. You might want to circle it first in verse 14 and then again in the beginning of verse 15. And there are different Greek words that are translated for in the New Testament. This one means because. And so he's giving us two reasons, for or if because. Here's one reason you don't have to grieve like the rest of 
the lost world. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, there are different kinds of conditional statements in the Greek New Testament. This is what linguists call a first-class conditional statement. You use a first-class conditional statement when you want to write something that you assume to be true. And so you find this structure in the temptation of Christ. Satan says, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Satan is not questioning the deity of Christ. Actually, he's affirming it, and he's challenging Jesus to prove it through some miracle. When Jesus said in John 15, same kind of structure, first class conditional statement, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He's not implying that the world might not hate you. He is guaranteed that if you live and speak for Christ, the world will hate you. And so here he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's not questioning their belief. He's assuming it to be true. Now, some newer translations don't put the word if in there, but they put the word sense in there. And they do that for clarity, but I think it actually distracts from the argument that God is actually making. Although it is certainly true that Paul obviously recognized that these people embraced the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you had just put the word sense, then this verse would become more of a lecture rather than a dialogue. And he wants to draw them into a, a thought process here. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, they'd say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. And they're reading the letter. Yeah, we believe that. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that, then he is going to bring these loved ones who have already died, as he will argue, out of the grave at the rapture. And so he's emphasizing, he's trying to grab their attention. If we believe this one thing is true, then this other thing is true. For if we, and by the way, Paul includes himself, Paul believed that the rapture could happen in his life. You say, well, it didn't. Was Paul wrong for writing that? No, he was wrong. He was right for writing it. Because it could have happened in his life. He lived with this sense of expectancy. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Again, sleep being a euphemism for death. But in his description of Jesus' death, interestingly, he never uses the word sleep, none of the gospels or the epistles. Why is that? Because if you were here last week, his death was horrible. You cannot soften it. But because there was such horror in his death and the physical and spiritual payment, there needs to be no horror in your death. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the gospel, that's what someone baptized this morning confessed symbolically, when you go down under the water, the word baptizo means to submerge, to immerse. When you go down and you come up, you're saying, my faith is in the gospel and Jesus who died, who was buried, and was raised from the dead. That's our confession of faith. Paul defined the gospel in 1 Corinthians that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for everyone who believes. So since we do believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, circle those words, even so, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
So our hope, part of the guarantee that God has given us as Christians is more than the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return as king and judge, but also that he is going to bring with him. That word with is so important. You might want to circle it, underline it, do something with it. He'll bring with him. With him who? With him your loved ones who have already died. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He's going to bring their spirits back from heaven. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so Jesus came into this world to take the sting out of death. You know, I've lived in the same home for over 30 years. And for 30 years, I drove up and down this street. And there used to be a big trailer park. And the lady died, one of our former church members. And it was just obliterated. And my wife said, what's that back there? She said, it's a graveyard. We'd been driving up and down the road for 30 years and never seen this graveyard. So we drove off the road and back into the woods and there on one of the graves, a man born a dead in 1923 had written on his tombstone, oh death, where is your sting? Jesus took the sting out of death we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Now watch this. The Christians here in Thessalonica could have their minds set at ease because the fact is, is that Jesus will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And by the way, unless you are in Jesus, you will not be going to heaven. The simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament is someone who is in Jesus, someone who is in Christ. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin, who is sinless, to be sin on our behalf there on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, identified and covered in his righteousness, then these truths are indeed true of you. Listen, in the most complete and lengthy dialogue in all the New Testament on the resurrection, it's 1 Corinthians 15. The chapter opens, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Not gospel, but it's articular, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received and which you stand by which you are saved. Wonderful. What is the gospel by which we are saved? He defines it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Tanakh. According to the scriptures. We'd say today, according to the Old Testament, that he was buried and he was raised. How? According to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the death, the burial, the burial is part of the gospel. You don't bury people who are alive. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ are all prophesied in Holy Scripture. God gives pictures of Messiah right from the start. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they try to basically adapt fig leaf religion by the works of their hands. They try to cover their own shame with fig leaves. And the first death in all the universe takes place where God kills multiple animals because he clothes them with skins, plural. And he's underscoring the truth. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Abel, he comes with a blood sacrifice. Cain comes by his hard work. All oh, these liberal scholars, 
And some evangelicals have foolishly adopted it, said, oh, Cain brought his second best, Abel brought his very best. No, the difference was on the nature of the sacrifice. One came on the basis of blood. By faith, the scripture says he offered a better sacrifice. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God had revealed through Adam and Eve, even on the day when they fell, and to his sons, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Again, in the scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection are found, the Passover lamb. Our Jewish friends just celebrated Passover, as we did as well. They a little differently than us, but the blood was placed on the doorpost and the lintel. And when the judgment came through the land, God saw the blood, he passed over. In the sacrificial system, there are rivers of blood. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest would put blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And when God looked down at the items in the box, the Ten Commandments, which they rejected, the leadership of God is seen in the budded rod, the provision of God is seen in the jar of manna. All he saw was the blood that covered over their sin. In Psalm 22, in Psalm 16, in Psalm 2, God prophesies the death and resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 53, a passage Jewish people don't read. You know, they have a reading program where they read through the whole Torah, the first five books, and then selected passages. Isaiah 53 has never been in their reading program. Why not? Because Jesus is all over it. Abraham there on top of Mount Moriah offering Isaac. What we just studied in our 10-week series on Jonah, Jonah being captured in the belly of the great fifth fish. This is what Paul is speaking about. The death, the burial, and the resurrection are all according to the scripture, either by direct prophecy or by type or by illustration. It's all according to the scriptures. His point in 1 Corinthians 15 is that just as Jesus was prophesied literally to come out of the grave, so will you literally come out of the grave. Was Jesus literally dead? Yes. Was he literally buried? Yes. Was he literally resurrected contrary to some preachers in our community? Yes, he was. He physically, literally came out of the grave just as he will physically, literally come to judge the living and the dead. And so when he dispels their questions about the resurrection, he basically says, if you want to know what the harvest is like, just look at the first fruit. It all starts there with Jesus' resurrection. So first, the grounds of our hope are on the work of Christ. Secondly, he also grounds our hope on the word of Christ, on the word of Christ. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You see, our assurance that we will be caught up is not only based on Christ's work, but also on his word. We have history and we have Holy Scripture. We have the resurrection and we have the revelation of God. Everything is revealed already in Scripture. I've told you already that one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature. And yet, sadly today, prophecy is rarely taught. The very thing the seminary I went to that was known for, men are no longer being equipped for, and they don't know any better, because that's all they know. But the scripture and its prophetic nature is something that is to be taught. So here's Paul, and he's not speaking now of some Old Testament prophecy, 
He is speaking of a literal word from the Lord, of course. He missed that three-year ring that the disciples had, but he had a three-year exposure with the Lord out in the desert. Now, whether Jesus told him there or however it was communicated to him, he said, I'm saying to you what I'm saying to you by the word of the Lord. He could even be appealing to their knowledge of what God would write through John. For Jesus plainly said it in John chapter 14. So there's this program at his, uh, there's this promise that he gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the word of the Lord. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you will be as well. Hey, listen, he is preparing a place for us. It's called the Father's house. It's called the New Jerusalem. You know, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. He spent 2,000 years on this place. It's got to be magnificent. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. It's called in the book of Titus, the blessed hope. And it's grounded on the work of Christ and it's grounded on the word of Christ. Now, secondly, beyond the promise of his return, I want us to think for a moment about the program at his return. The program at his return. And so now by divine revelation, Paul expands on what Jesus taught in John chapter 14. Look at verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's answering their question. What is the status of our loved ones who have died before Jesus comes back? When will our loved ones be raised? And his answer is the dead in Christ will be the very first to go up. That we who are alive will not have preference or priority over those who are dead in Christ. And so those who have already gone home, they're the first to come out of the grave. Now remember, only three months had gone by since Paul had been in Thessalonica when he writes this letter. And some of them had already died, maybe by sickness, maybe by persecution. It's a reminder to me of how fragile life is. None of us plan to die this year, but we could. We're all one heartbeat away from eternity. So whether it was by persecution or old age or poor health, we don't know, but many had already died. And so he wants to underscore two truths. First in verse 16, first the program, that his program includes the resurrection of the dead. So Paul proceeds to unfold the specifics of his program, and he gives three truths. First, his program includes the resurrection of the dead. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with his shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I love that, the Lord himself. In fact, the pronoun here, himself, is in the emphatic position in my Greek New Testament. You could literally render it, himself, the Lord will descend. In other words, he's not sending some emissary to get you. Jesus himself is coming back for us. That's why the angel there on the Mount of Olives could say, this Jesus who has been taken to you, taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way that you watched him go into heaven, the Lord himself. That's whom we are waiting for. And notice there are three sounds that describe this program, three sounds that accompany his return. First, 
in verse 16, a shout with the voice of the archangel. Now, there are different words for shout in Koine Greek. There's the kind of shout that you might give at an athletic competition. But the word that's used here is used outside of the New Testament of a captain who shouts to his mates on boards to, to row or to a military officer giving a command. It's the word that refers to an authoritative cry. You could illustrate it with what Jesus did at the grave of Lazarus. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, it's well been said, had he left Lazarus' names off and just said, come forth, all the graves would have opened. But there's coming a time when the graves of the believers will be open and God will give his authoritative shout. And of course, Lazarus' raising is very different from ours. There are eight people specifically in Scripture who are raised to life like Lazarus only to die again. Lazarus got old or sick again. The Scripture doesn't record it. But he's buried in some tomb over there in Israel. He was raised in his natural body only to die again. Jesus was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. He is the first fruits. And we will have a body like his. He will say, come forth. You say, well, what if my loved one died a horrible death? Suppose there's no body left. Suppose he's disintegrated into absolutely nothing. Suppose he died in some crematorium. It's certainly not a problem for God Almighty. I love the true story of Roger Williams. He was the founder of Rhode Island, and he was a great Baptist preacher. When they buried Roger Williams there in Prospect Park in Providence, Rhode Island. The, the caretaker thought it would be appropriate to put a nice tree next to his grave, and so he put an apple tree there. Well, some years later, the Baptist decided to exhume his body to give him a more prominent place, being the famous Baptist that he was. And when they went to exhume his body, they discovered that the root of the apple tree had gone right into, his, into the coffin, into his head, and made its way down and split through his legs. And the tree absorbed the chemicals of the body of Roger Williams, and of course, apples grew, and people ate the apples. <laughs> you say, well, where is the body of Roger Williams? Certainly not a problem for God Almighty. It is not a problem. God who wove you together in your mother's womb will weave your resurrection body back together. The grave will yield your body, whether it's dust, whether it's disintegrated. And yes, believers always bury their loved ones. Some believers in ignorance cremate them. But the biblical pattern is to bury your loved ones. If you've cremated your loved one or you want to cremate your loved one, will I do your funeral? I'll do whatever you want. But if you're asking me, what does the Bible teach by model, by illustration? It's not cremation. Cremation came on the scene in 1876. And it was unthinkable for a Bible-believing Christian to cremate their loved ones. And it was largely put into the forefront of the American culture through the Unitarians who denied the triunity of God. They denied the deity of Christ. They denied the authority of Scripture. At least that's where Unitarians were at that point in history. And so to raise their little ugly fists in the face of God because they denied the bodily resurrection, they cremated their loved ones and said, let's see what your God can do with this. 
So Christians repelled the thought. But in Scripture, the model is burial, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, like planting a seed in the ground with an expectation that life will come. It's a testimony. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ananias, Sapphira, John the Baptist, the saints in Corinth were all buried. And when God himself does a funeral, he, the Lord, buried Moses. Look, your funeral will have a lot more punch. I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals. And your funeral will have so much more punch if there's a body there. You say it's expensive. You'll spend your money on what's important. And this is important. It may be your last chance to win some of your friends and loved ones into the kingdom. And so there's the shout. Notice, too, there's the voice of the archangel. You say, why would the archangel even speak? Well, if you remember, the Bible reveals since the time of the Garden of Eden, there's this invisible angelic battle that is going on. And there's this fallen angel by the name of Satan, the chief of all the demonic forces who've been trying to blind the minds of the unbelievings to take them away into the place where he will spend eternity. But angels who, the writer of the Hebrews says, comes to render service for those who will inherit salvation, they serve us to this day. They're here today. You don't see them, but they watch and look at us, Paul says, at every worship service. The audience here is actually a lot bigger than you realize. But the archangel, there's only one recorded in Scripture. His name is Michael. And how appropriate that God would involve the archangel because the archangel will basically say, Satan, you're defeated. Make way for the children of the promise. And the third sound we hear notice is the trumpet of God. Now, there are many trumpets in Scripture, and we'll study the last trumpet later on in this series, God willing. But God uses trumpets for a new program, sometimes to signal the people for assembly, to end a war, to call them to worship. And putting this verse together with the revelation, God is going to blow the trumpet. He's going to raise up his army, the living and the dead, and call them to worship as you see in the revelation. The commander-in-chief is coming with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then at that moment, the dead in Christ will rise first. There's their answer. There'll be no advantage to being alive when Jesus comes back. And so to have sorrow over this is an unjustified sorrow. And then notice the very first word of verse 17. It is the word then. In the original, as in English, this is a chronological adverb. He is giving us the second step in God's program here. So his program includes the resurrection of the dead, but also includes the rapture of the living. The rapture of the living. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. This is what we call the rapture, the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. Now let me warn you, if you haven't heard it already, sooner or later, you'll meet some Christian who will tell you, well, the rapture is not a biblical doctrine. They might even be so bold to take out a concordance and say, show me where the word rapture appears in the Bible. And it is true, the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. And the word Bible doesn't appear in the Bible. <laughs> and the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible or Sunday. But we believe in 66 inspired books. We believe that there's one God who lives in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. We believe the Lord's day is the day in which we are to worship. 
And so while technically it's not found in the English Bible, it is found in the Latin Vulgate Bible. Here's verse 17 out of the Latin Vulgate. I underlined for you the Latin word rapimor, which is from the verb rapturo, and so we get our word rapture. Now you can call it whatever you want, but every true Christian, unless they're just ignorant, unless they want to tear 1 Thessalonians 4 out of the Bible, believe that the church is going to be caught up, that God is going to raise the living and the dead believers into new resurrected bodies suited for heaven. It is going to happen. You can call it the harpazo if you want. That's what the word means, to be caught up. So the concept of the rapture, like the concept of the Trinity and the concept of original sin and the concept of Sunday and so forth is clearly, plainly taught in Scripture. And so the rapture will happen. We will see later in this schedule the judgment of the just when God evaluates true believers. They're in heaven, not to see if they go there. We're saved by grace, but God will evaluate your service. And then he will have us to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, some people think that the church will go through the great tribulation. We'll see that's impossible. And if you were here last week, I reminded you that Jesus did not die as a martyr for some cause. He didn't die as some moral example. When he pulled himself up on those nails to get the fullest breath, and he shouted, it is finished. Indeed, he had paid in full our sin debt. Certainly the church will meet the wrath of Satan as we have through the centuries. Certainly the church will meet the wrath of man as we have through the centuries. But the tribulation period is more than both of those. It is the wrath of God Almighty. And God doesn't leave his bride here for the great tribulation only to get beat up black and blue and then to invite her to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look, the picture doesn't even work. And so in the Greek, harpazo, it means to snatch up to catch away in some translations, to carry off. If you were to give a modern paraphrase, you might just say, zap, suddenly. Philip, the word is used of him. When Philip, after he had preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, when they came up out of the water, because he brought him down into the water to baptize him, not to the edge to sprinkle him. They came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord snatched, there it is, harpazo. Snatch Philip away, and in a second he's gone, and he shows up in another town called Azotus. You might want to put 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 53, next to verse 17. These are familiar words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we'll not all die, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the, tr- at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Not all Christians are going to die. There will be a generation of Christians that will be alive here for the rapture of the church. And the scripture doesn't say in the blinking of an eye, but in the twinkling of an eye, which is incredibly fast. Only born-again Christians will be caught up. Only those who become partakers of the divine nature. Think of it this way. Suppose this platform were a big garden. And I planted in my garden copper and brass and zinc and chromium and iron. I buried it all into the ground. And then suppose we get one of those big car magnets. When we were kids, we'd get on our bicycle and we'd ride all the way up to the dump 
It was about six miles away. It was a great bike hike, as we called them back then. I don't think kids get much exercise anymore, do they? It's all in the thumbs, I suppose. In either case, we'd go there, and we'd love to see these magnificent magnets coming over a car, and whoosh! The car would go up into that magnet, and then they'd put it in the proper place. Well, if you could take one of those big electromagnets and put it all across this platform with all those metals buried, the only thing that would come out of the ground would be the iron. Why? It would leap out of the dirt because it has the same nature as the magnet. The rest would be left behind. And unless you become a partaker of the divine nature, sealed by the Spirit of God for the day of redemption, you will be left behind. His program includes the resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the living third, and finally, his program includes the reunion of all the saints. Once again, in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. You're going to be together with them. The living ones and the dead ones are going to meet the Lord in the air. If you have a father or a mother, a grandfather, a grandmother, maybe a son, a daughter, maybe a little baby you miscarried, maybe even a baby you aborted, maybe a a child taken before the time of accountability, all of a sudden they'll be caught up and we will meet each other in the air. Now there are two dimensions to this reunion. First, we will meet those who went on before us, and yes, we will recognize them as we already underscored that Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration were fully recognizable. But there'll also be a reunion with the Lord Jesus. We will see him. Are you ready to meet him? If you are a Christian, would you shrink back in shame? Now, there's those that God will be ashamed of. Those are unbelievers who are unwilling to confess him before man even. But then there are believers who will shrink back in shame, different group. When they see their Lord face to face, and they think, why did I waste my life on such vain and stupid things? And if you are listening to me somewhere in the world today and you do not have the divine nature implanted in your heart through a birth from above, you're not ready for heaven. You say, I want to go to heaven. I think I might. The scripture says knowing and thinking and hoping is not enough. You must know that you have eternal life. And God did everything required for it to happen for you. Death is certain. You have an appointment with death. It is appointed for a man to die once. But are you ready? And if you will come in humility and faith and submit to his lordship, he will instantly save you. He will clothe you in Christ's righteousness. You'll be considered in Christ. And he'll plant God the spirit in you who will bear witness as you grow with your spirit that you've become a child of God. And when you die or Jesus comes back, in the twinkling of an eye, in a nanosecond, You'll be with Jesus. You must choose. Will you go up with Christ? Or will you be left for Antichrist? 
Now, Father, I thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Help someone here today who's unsure of their salvation. Help them to know that Jesus didn't die for some or most of their sin, but all of it. And he proved his sinlessness and his ability to be their substitute when you raised him from the dead. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is a trustworthy statement and it deserves our full acceptance that you came into the world to save sinners. Help someone, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me on the merits of your cross and your death and resurrection. Forgive me and give me this new life. And give me the courage to openly, publicly, without any hesitation to confess you before men. Now, Father, I recognize there are many here who have crossed that line, some of whom need a church home. If you would put in their hearts today, and it would please you for them to be a part of this fellowship, then we pray you'd move on them. But there are some who have been saved and baptized or members of a New Testament church but they're lackadaisical. They are not spiritually and prophetically awake to what is happening right before our eyes. And so they are investing their life in vain things that have little significance for eternity. Please reroute our course. Thank you that this life and even the things in this life you've given us to enjoy But please help us never to put those things as priorities over the things of the kingdom. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.